This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to episode number two of Liberty Now. I'm your host, John Verd, trainer, piper, Navy diver, and Liberty lover. Thank you for stopping by. This is the show where we believe in common sense, we seek the truth, and we can think for ourselves. I'll be here every Saturday at 10 p.m. to chat with you about stuff that matters to you and me and everyone we know. We'll be following the stories behind the headlines asking questions, and talking to people who are taking action. Today, we're going to talk about COVID-19. What do you believe about its origins? What's different about this virus from other coronaviruses? How lethal is it? And why are the hundreds of scientists and doctors who ask these questions being censored? In a moment, I'm going to play an interview with one of those doctors who has questioned the mainstream media narrative regarding COVID-19 and how cases are being documented. Here's a little clip. So for the U.S., what's interesting is that there was a lot of changes associated with how people reported uh, the death statistics in the United States. So what happened is that in March 24th of 2020, the CDC published uh, the newsletter number two on COVID-19, which basically told them, we're going to designate a new way of categorizing deaths. And if someone has a diagnosis of COVID-19, that's going to be primary. That was my good friend, Dr. Javier Figueroa, in a recent interview. We'll listen to more in a few. But before we do, I'd like to give us some background on the history of biological warfare and uh, government experimentation. There are many examples, but I'll give just two here to establish the precedent that our governments have done biological experiments on the general public without consent. The first example you may have heard about, the Tuskegee experiments. Between 1932 and 1972, the United States Public Health Service conducted a study to observe the natural progression of untreated syphilis. The African-American men in the study were only told that they were receiving free health care from the federal government of the United States. Of the original 399 men, 28 died of syphilis, 100 were dead of related complications, 40 of their wives had been infected, and 19 of their children were born with congenital syphilis. Then from 1977, a Washington Post newspaper in this headline. Army conducted 239 secret open-air germ warfare tests. In the article, it says, between 1949 and 1969, tests were conducted by releasing live but supposedly harmless microscopic bugs at Washington's Greyhound bus terminal and National Airport as part of an experiment. The idea, according to a two-volume report the Army gave to the Senate Health Subcommittee, was to learn how to wage biological warfare and defend against it. 
In the 1950s San Francisco tests, for example, the bacteria Serratia marcensis was used. Medical researchers suspect that it may have caused 11 cases of pneumonia in the Bay Area at that time. If you're just tuning in, this is John Verd on Liberty Now On Air, weekly podcast slash broadcast on 96.9 Plains FM. You can also catch up with me over at libertynow.com. Now, I want to be clear that we're not denying COVID-19 is real or that it has that it has uh, not resulted in deaths, but there is enough evidence to question its origins and how many people have died from the virus itself versus the number of deaths resulting from the lockdowns. Okay, now I'd like to play the interview with Dr. Figueroa. He's been doing deep research on COVID-19 since it first hit the news. Okay, let's take a listen. Javier, Dr. Figueroa, Dr. X. It's my... good to see you. Javier, you're, you're in Seattle, Washington in the U.S. That is correct. I'm... In the great state of Washington. Yeah, where uh, Katie and I had been living for the last 15 years before we moved here to New Zealand on the other side of the planet. Yeah, it's interesting to see... Um, how different things are between countries, um, but I think we're all facing the aftermath or it's still ongoing, the uh, outcome of, of COVID-19 in, in a COVID world in the last year. A lot of different opinions on what it's all about. I thought a, a good starting point would be just introducing you, Javier. Tell me a little bit about your background, your bona fide. Well, I'm uh, originally uh, an immigrant uh, to the United States. In 1973, my parents left Chile under duress after a coup uh, that occurred uh, coincidentally, 9-11-1973. Oh. And uh, basically, we emigrated and lived uh, between the United States and Mexico for about uh, seven years until finally uh, emigrating and settling down in California in 1980. And so I've been in the United States being educated since 1980 in California, in Washington, uh, in Oregon. So my first foray into the uh, science, uh, applied sciences was in uh, at UC Davis in the 90s. I uh, received my bachelor's degree in uh, microbiology from UC Davis, go Aggies. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, one of the best things about UC Davis is that they had the medical school there and they had some excellent infectious disease researchers, teachers, virologists. So I got uh, a really, uh, I would say, a, a world-class education in immunology, virology, and microbiology. And then uh, I did some uh, master's uh, work at uh, CSU Fresno, uh, where I completed the coursework for a master's degree uh, in biotechnology, so basically applying the uh, techniques and know-how of you need to grow antibodies, you need to grow cells, you need to grow proteins. That's what yep. the degree taught me, in essence. That also, I, I didn't get my my degree because it would have required um, another year of doing a, a master's uh, dissertation or thesis. And that's when I was accepted for my PhD program up here in the uh, University of Washington where um, I completed a PhD in neurobiology and behavior from the Department of uh, Toxicology and Environmental Health. So I also have a background in toxicology from the UW. After graduating, uh, I did two postdocs in the Department of Bioengineering, where I was exposed to engineers 
and the rigor that they have for doing applied medical research, as well as absolutely destroying a lot of the assumptions I held as a biologist, a molecular biologist. The rigor was much greater in terms of doing that. Then I uh, did a a second postdoc with Gerald Pollack in his lab, looking at water uh, and water structure and water in biological systems, which is significantly different from water and the water that we drink. So that was also right. uh, another, uh, the, the great rabbit hole. Some really, that opened up a lot of stuff there. Yeah, I, I've, I remember having some discussions with you about the implications of that. It is some really interesting stuff. So I guess it goes without saying that your opinion is not uninformed when it comes to COVID-19 Correct. pandemic. I, you know, I say that a little bit skeptically, but um, I've seen a lot of things that justify skepticism. Yes. Um, it's interesting what you can discern from watching the mainstream media. They all seem to be pretty much lockstep and uniform in their opinion. It, it doesn't seem to be journalism. It seems to be more a narrative, a uni- very unified narrative. You don't hear much dissenting right. opinion. I say that because I've seen doctors, you know, and very well-qualified people being censored or cut out of the conversation. Oh, yes. So that leads me to believe that there is something to at least question there. And then you have off of the mainstream media, lots of things that are, are not allowed on social media or the primary um, media channels. They're being censored left and right. Exactly. These are not uninformed people, you know, like yourself. So some of the basic questions, what is COVID-19? What, so, as distinct from, you know, say other coronaviruses? Uh, that's a good question. So um, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the official designation that they have for this virus, has uh, genetic similarities to SARS, the uh, Sudden Acquired Respiratory Syndrome. Yep. And what this particular um, virus has is an increased infectivity and what appears to be, uh, what, what they claim is a higher lethality. Well, they, I don't think they claim higher lethality, but it's certainly made to sound and look like it's more lethal than SARS. SARS at a greater lethality. It, it didn't infect as many people, but the people that it did infect, they did uh, die from it. They're, they didn't have that much resistance to it. Right. What we're seeing is that with SARS-CoV-2, even though there are uh, sufficient genetic similarities to label, label it as a coronavirus, it has a lot more uh, interesting features to it than the original SARS sequence. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, so some of these additional features, I'm hearing polar opposite opinions from supposed virologist who would know, but, but what I have heard from some virologists is that this was, it, it made the jump from animals to humans naturally, organically. Um, right, yeah. First, it was claimed to be from uh, bat soup in a wet market, and then it was from um, pangolins or some other exotic right. yep. animal. But these virologists I've listened to are, are making this opinion based on behavior and epidemiology but the opposing opinions are from actual virologists and scientists who have examined it physically with electron microscopes correct yeah so they are saying that they can see that it's been spliced and it has insertions of other types of viruses not the least of which is the hiv virus or a portion of it am i correct yeah am i so my understanding and my memory of what, what I was able to read from a study that was published by uh, researchers in India that was then retracted 
right. under pressure by the by the institute, uh, and under much criticism by, you know, I, I don't even I can't even um, uh, determine if these were actual the people that were criticizing it were uh, established virologists at uh, either universities or, or institutional uh, research groups. But they basically came to the conclusion that this was uh, an engineered virus. But they basically came to the conclusion that this was uh, an engineered virus, that there were too many changes and too many changes that increased uh, infectivity and potentially lethality for it to be a uh, natural evolution of the SARS virus into this particular strain. There was another researcher, I think she was uh, a Hong Kong researcher, that also came out and basically said, no, I, I work with this. And she said that, you know, this was also an engineered uh, virus. Now, I don't, I don't know the veracity of uh, the Hong Kong researchers' claims. She wrote a paper that went uh, on the web as a preprint, and she made the claim that, yes, this was an engineered virus. Now, as it turns out, the city of Wuhan uh, in Hubei province is one of the uh, only BSL-4 facilities for doing research on highly infectious and lethal viruses. Right. And it just so happens that that was the city that got hit first with SARS-CoV-2. And right. the, the, all the connecting points and all the shifting narratives and stories that came out of China and also the very strange behavior of uh, of stopping internal domestic flights or shutting down internal domestic flights into uh, Wuhan, but allowing uh, international flights right. uh, after discovery makes it makes it highly suspect. Right. I mean, at, at the very least, it's hard to say where, where's a, a smoking gun. Do I have a photograph of the genetic insertions? All I have to go by is yeah. the papers of the exactly. scientists who, who actually have done the research. And then we have inconsistent and suspect behavior and then add to that the gain of function research being conducted by Dr. Fauci under the Obama administration in 2015 am I correct correct so Obama in 2012 issued uh, 2012. an executive order basically banning gain of function research in the United States so uh, Fauci the NIAIDS director basically signed off on funding research in Wuhan on gain-of-function of this, quote, bat virus. Right. So we're talking about gain-of-function work from the U.S. Uh, this is, well, they, they say for maybe the development of vaccines, but other people might right. say this is for uh, military purposes or as a bioweapon. Either way, not safe. The United States says we need to, well, stop this research for whatever reason. It, right. was, it was moved out of the country where they presumably have lower standards or uh, requirements. And it's coincidentally the same virus, right? They were doing gain of function research right. with COVID. Well, I don't know if it's the exact same virus, but it's definitely in the, in the same family. Oh, okay. And wouldn't you know it that it is derived from known bat coronaviruses. So there's enough sequence similarity. You can say, yeah, this is a direct descendant or is uh, highly connected to the, the bat virus research. And the principal investigator uh, in the virus research, she worked at that facility. Right. Gain-of-function research is, uh, you know, the, the claims that, well, we're using it to develop vaccines. Uh, 
that's a nice way to justify it. But right. You can easily turn it into a weapon. So this idea that you have to turn, you have to use weapons to make vaccines. Right. Right. Hey, give me a break. Right. Uh, for the layman or people who aren't familiar with the term yet, gain of function, what does that mean? So usually it means a change, either a, a natural mutation in the genetic sequence or a uh, deliberate alteration of the genetic sequence, which either enhances the infectivity or the lethality right. of a virus. Now, the problem is that you have to have a sort of a, uh, an in-between point. You can have highly lethal viruses that are not going to be very infectious because they kill their hosts. So it's right. going to be self-limiting in, right. in some senses. You can be a highly infectious virus that has very low lethality, which allows the virus to replicate and spread without killing the host. So you have that sort of in-between point. So a lot of the flu viruses are highly infectious, but have low lethality. Right. And you have some viruses, severe influenza viruses, for example, the 1918 um, influenza. Right. That is highly infectious and also highly lethal, but it burns out quickly. Right. And because of the changing nature of travel, you could get this widespread um, distribution. Fast now, what's interesting rate. is that, yeah, you, you had a lot of deaths, but there's a lot of confounding factors that need to be addressed with the Spanish flu as well. But we're nowhere near, nowhere near the mortality levels when you just for population. Yeah, when it comes to mortality rates, there's a few things that need to be discussed that aren't yes. allowed to be discussed on social media. One of those factors is hospitals being designated as COVID facilities have required big uh, sections of the hospital be vacated, which has meant yep. um, empty hospitals. Correct. In anticipation of lots of the 2 million dead that we were projected to have in the U.S., yep. I guess. And I've seen lots of video showing empty hospitals. And also there's been um, the media has played it up. They've, they've actually staged people in biohazard suits and gotten people to stand in line outside of the hospital to make it look as though um, people were waiting to get tested and, and get into the hospital. And Correct. it turned out not to be the actual case. And if it was truly as, as infectious as we're led to believe, that wouldn't be necessary. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that hospitals in the U.S. were given a, um, emergency funds to deal with the pandemic, right? And I believe that in the bill, it was written that they would receive like $13,000 per COVID patient, and then another 50,000 or 30,000 if they were required to be on a, a ventilator. Correct, yeah. So, so the, there was definitely some monetary incentives. It's exactly, that's what I wanted to get to, is this automatically gives an incentive, right? Because the hospitals, are restricted from receiving their, their regular flow of income from their regular patients, even, you know, cancer patients, right? Because the facilities have been redesignated for COVID. So Correct. out of desperation for money, like any business, um, there is an incentive. Now, we, you would want to say, well, they, they would never do anything like that. But I mean, you, you have to at least look, okay, there's monetary incentive there. And, yes. then, and then you have anecdotally cases where young people that were in a motorcycle accident they died from the trauma of the motorcycle accident and but they also did a the uh the pcr test yeah and so if they tested positive then they're counted in the covid death column so you have to question Correct. the accuracy on the number of deaths attributed to covid 
at the very least, you got to question some of those numbers. So for the U.S., what's interesting is that there was a lot of changes associated with how people reported uh, the death statistics in the United States. So the CDC in 2003 put out um, two handbooks for uh, uh, coroners and pathologists and medical doctors on how to properly categorize how people died. So since 2003, you've had uh, nationwide a set of rules and criteria that told doctors how to classify. You know, someone had heart disease, you know, what was the underlying cause of their death? So if someone comes into the hospital, they're diagnosed with the flu, they're at the hospital for several days, they get a pneumonia, which usually can either be a viral or bacterial infection, and all of a sudden they go downhill, nothing works, and they die. And they also had an underlying uh, heart disease as well as diabetes, the comorbidities. What was the cause of death? Well, if you have uncontrolled diabetes but stable heart disease, they'll designate that as, okay, well, the diabetes was probably the, the primary cause with heart disease as a secondary cause that made the pneumonia brought on by the influenza the case. So the person died of of diabetes or of heart disease or of these conditions. So there's a standard hierarchy of reporting. Correct. So what happened is that in March 24th of 2020, the CDC published uh, the newsletter number two on COVID-19, which basically told them, we're going to designate a new way of categorizing deaths. And if someone has a diagnosis of COVID-19, that's going to be primary. Well, I'm going to bring yeah. up, I'm just That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there is this great paper done by IPAC, I-P-A-K, which is a group of researchers uh, that looked into what happened with the way that uh, doctors were coding deaths, especially um, COVID deaths. And this particular lo- newsletter, this particular CDC uh, change in the guidelines is what actually turned uh, the, the, the death statistics on their heads. If you're just tuning in, this is John Verd on Liberty Now On Air, a weekly broadcast slash podcast on 96.9 Plains FM. If you'd like to hear the full conversation, head over to libertynow.com, where you can also get the links, files, and show notes for this episode. And if you care about liberty as much as I do, if you want to take action, please share it. You can also email me at John at libertynow.com. Until next time, be good and keep asking questions.